Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our Sunday very, very special mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the good man, Andrew Page. How are you, buddy? I'm good, Scott. Uh, how are things? I'm, mate, I'm very, very well. A secret behind the curtain. I only spoke to you about 15 minutes ago. So um, I'm still as well as I was, but this is now officially a Sunday. <laughs> so I'm not sure how I'll be on Sunday. The weather's supposed to be pretty good. So let's assume I'm, I'm well. Uh, mate, you are, of course, from strawman.com. And I will ask you again to come up with something different. What exactly is Strawman? <laughs> it's a website. Okay, good. Done. Let's move on. <laughs> what is the website? Ooh, check, what, you know what? This is your business, mate. Give, give, yourself a, do yourself a favour. Hey, look, just go check it out. It's just a it's a more sensible place to connect with other investors without all the pumpers, rampers, and people who like to make a lot of noise but really have no accountability or, or no idea what they're saying. So we, <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're, the, uh, we're the investment club for, for people who are a bit smarter than the average bear, I would say. Oh, I see. I like that. Nice. Yeah, you, know, you never, yeah, ever, yeah. ever. You know what the thing about flattery is? Even though you know it's fake, you still can't help feel a little bit happy about it, right? Someone says, wow, you look amazing. You're like, I don't really, but thank you. I feel a bit more special after that. It's impossible not to, right? Even though you know someone's flattering you, you still feel good. So I'm sure your members are happy that Mate, you're saying like so. It's, like, uh, it's like that finding that just the act of fake smiling or fake laughing actually makes you feel better. <laughs> so it's probably, it's probably some similar neurological pathway or something. Who knows? <laughs> you know what else is true, by the way? It turns out if you tell someone something and then tell them it's false, their brain still can't help but actually accept the fact as real. There's some weird scientific study. Yeah, yeah. That, that, is, that really spins me out. You say to someone, this is not true, but, and then you say it, and a, a strangely large number of people, not everybody, of course, a strangely large number of people who ask them later will tell you that's actually true. That's weird. Yeah, the brains are yep, weird. Yep, and, uh, and uh, I tell you what, marketers really know this as well, and they're getting really good oh, at it. So, you know, uh, we are we are very easy to manipulate, which is a little bit scary. That's uh, ma- like massive tangent. Why, why not? We start the podcast with a tangent most weeks. Uh, that is the thing that gets me right about marketing is, and, and also those things like you know, marketers, politicians, political spinners, advertisers, opinion columnists. These people know they are messing with your heads and the average punter either doesn't know or thinks they're somehow smarter than that and the whole idea that it happens at a subconscious level i i what you know the most frustrating thing again i was talking about twitter on friday the most frustrating thing for me is people say no no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah behavioral science now it's rubbish i'm not i'm not susceptible to that other people are but no, just they've just got to be they've just got to be sensible they've got to be rational it's like dude you, mm. you don't get it like the brain doesn't let you be rational before it's already absorbed the information you're thinking about it mm. after the fact, not during the fact. You can't. You, you literally can't do it, right? It's like I don't know. Yeah. Saying to someone, you should just grow a third leg. You can't just because you want to, it to be true. Just because you want to think you're rational and too smart for the average bear, as you said, or or just you know, I I'm, I don't mm. get caught up by that stuff. It's like no, no. You literally that that's the point, right? Um, we have no yeah. choice. That's yeah. why they're so insidious. Yeah, yeah, it's really scary. There's well, really one of my favorite cartoons. I think it was a New Yorker originally or whatever. And there's a there's two booths, and on one booth it sort of says "wrong but easy," and there's this massive line of people lined up, and there's another one that says uh, com- uh, "complicated but right," and there's no yeah. one at that stall. And I, I think uh, oh, I think it says a lot so about us us humans. Mate, should we get on with the mailbag? I guess we should. We probably should. 
<laughs> I was going to say probably don't, at some point. I was going to say people are here just listen to us talk, but they kind of actually are. But I assume they want to be investing stuff instead. So let's <laughs> let's do that. By the way, really quick, let's do that. Here you go. Watch me. Watch me. Seg here uh, behind the curtain. Um, th- that behavioral finance is such an important part of investing, guys. So if you're listening to this and you don't yet know enough, grab yourself a, a book called The Little Book of Behavioral Investing. It is spectacularly good. I've got Great about book. four copies on my on my uh, shelf by me. James Montier, M-O-N-T-I-E-R, wrote the book. It is spectacularly good. Um, do Seriously, if you haven't read it, you need to do it um, because those, those cognitive biases that you can't, even those who know about them struggle to get rid of them. But if you don't know about them, you're not trying, you're even you're even more susceptible yep. to them. So do yourself a favor, grab the book, Little Book of Behavioral Investing. I've ranted about this multiple times. I've written about it multiple times. Um, it is probably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb, Andrew. I'm not going to say it's the only or even the best book on behavioral finance that I know. I'm sure there are others out there. But I will say it's probably the most important investing book most people will read. There you go. How's that for a, a, a large ambit claim? I said on, I said on, I love it, right? I, I totally, I totally agree. Um, I said on Friday that you know, um, uh, quoting Buffett or paraphrasing Buffett, that this mm. the, the idea that to be a successful investor you need to have a stratospheric IQ and super smart. Yeah. is actually not yeah. true. It's the people who do really well are the people who have very um, a, a high emotional uh, intelligence or a, a very, a very uh-huh. strong um, emotional fortitude. That that is your skill. That is your edge. If 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 you can if you can be the kind of person who walks calmly in one direction while a, a mob <laughs> is screaming. <laughs> Right. And you know, yeah. bloody murder and running in the other one. You're you're, you're probably going to do really well over time. Yep. There we go. Let's let's move on then to the questions. I hope, I hope, the, I hope my first question is not going to be a Patrick saying Mate, that's a crazy question. No, not a crazy question. It's a good question because <laughs> here we go. Patrick says, "Dear Scott and Andrew, I really appreciate the insights from the podcast. Thank you, mate. I must admit, he says I was a little nervous when Anirban was leaving, but Andrew has provided some great insights into various aspects of the financial world." There you go, mate. <laughs> nice, nice early wrap for you. Uh, Scott, some big, big shoes to fill there, but uh, yeah, thank you. Ah, very much. you're filling them uh, very, very well. I mean, Doc had to fill your shoes in the first place, mate. You're just simply resuming your 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 shoes or reclaiming your shoes. <laughs> They're my shoes. I want, <laughs> got them back. Exactly. Get the hell out of my shoes. It's one of my one of my uh, favourite funny lines. Is you know always tr- try and walk a mile in someone else's shoes. That way, if you realise you're wrong, you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. <laughs> yes, I love it. Which I, I always like that one. All right. Patrick goes on to say, Scott, really balanced analysis as always. Thank you, mate. What I particularly like is that I come away with ideas or a framework to think about how to invest in shares, as well as increasing my knowledge on specific financial matters. I have a technical question, says Patrick. He's not talking about technical analysis, mate. Don't worry. He says, when one buys an ETF at, say, the market rate, are they literally buying a small proportion of the share at that market rate? For example... If I buy the S&P 500 at $4,000, let's just say that's the price, he says, am I buying a tiny portion of Apple at the then market rate? I understand ETFs track markets, but I thought that if lots of people are buying ETFs, and this may have the consequence of pushing up the shares in large markets, e.g. the NASDAQ or the ASX. Thanks again for all your work. Looking forward to listening. Here's a follow-up question. This is related to this. When I buy an index, am I buying a portion of the shares in this index, therefore reducing by a tiny amount the number available? Just trying to get a handle on exactly how ETFs work. So I love those questions, mate, because sometimes the mechanics of this stuff is what does trip people up. It can be a little bit complex from the outside. So let's let's get into it. Let's go with his first question first. He says, um, uh, does it have the consequence of pushing up shares in large markets if people are all buying ETFs? If everyone's buying the uh, ASX ETF, isn't that just pushing up the price of BHP? 
Uh, well, yeah, it is. But, you know, if everyone's buying BHP, that's pushing up the price of BHP. There is there is definitely supply and demand. And and though the naysayers uh, of ETFs, who are, who are traditionally um, active fund managers who, who see it as, as losing um, market share, so they've got a very vested interest to be against it, they will make these claims that they will, they will that these things uh, distort the markets. And that is that is a, uh, a kettle of worms that I don't want to dive into. But to answer the question, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically when you buy – no, it's not what happens – for every single trade, you know, they go off and then match it up. But right, I mean, right, right. they'll they'll probably balance it, what, every day is it or every week or something. So listen, they're never going to perfectly, perfectly track the index, but mm-hmm. they do regular rebalancings to make sure that that is, that that is matched up. Mm-hmm. I like that, mate. I, yeah, look, so, he, I, so your comments are perfect. Um, yes, it will push the price up a little bit because that's what happens when you buy shares in any company. It's like saying if I bought BHP or Apple or whatever myself, would that push the price up a little bit? Yeah, kind of by definition, right? Because you're adding to the, the demand and you're not adding to the supply. And so net-net, like any auction, if more people bid at the auction, might the price be a little bit higher than it would have been if no one bid? Yeah, kind of, possibly. Um, so that's absolutely true. But but again, there should be no difference between the ETF and the shares themselves. If you went out and said, I want to track the index, I'll buy myself a little bit of Apple and a little bit of BHP and a little bit of something else. The act of that would push the price up by just as much, which is arguably, or my, I would say actually, Exactly, completely a non-issue. It just doesn't it doesn't need to matter. The, the 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 proportion by which your purchase pushes the price up is no different to the general market dynamic of the overall market. Right? If ETFs didn't exist tomorrow, there'd be just as many Apple shares. There'd be just as much demand for those Apple shares. People would just buy them in different proportions because they couldn't use an index, so they have to go and buy a bit themselves. Um, and the net the net demand for shares wouldn't change. So the ETF itself, by its existence, doesn't change the market dynamics of, of share prices. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, mate? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and it's one—it's one of these things that, of all the things to just to pan out a bit, of all the things to worry and think about. I think, I think Patrick's got a really interesting technical yeah. question. That they are—they're interesting, but pff, that, don't worry about it. You know, it's—it's—it's basically—it is—it is—it is not going to be the difference between you getting a good return and a bad return. You know, it's basically going to match it yeah, as exactly, close exactly. as is practically achievable. Um, you know, and it, in, in in three, five, ten years' time, it's not going to make any difference. Agreed. Don't sweat it. But even, but even academically, I would just say, even don't academically, sweat the small stuff. It's not, it's not important, right? So for those who say, look, yeah, you know, I just want to understand the, even if it doesn't impact my my investing, I just still want to understand the implication of it. That the reality is, in, in 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 even from an academic perspective, it's it's a non-issue because it doesn't change the overall demand for shares, the 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 vehicle through which those shares are purchased. You know, the, the ETF is effectively the proxy for everyone in those ETFs going buy them shares themselves. And so it, by, by definition, it makes no difference to what would otherwise be happening in the market, right? I mean, it's possible that they'd buy more BHP and less Apple or more Apple, less BHP. So on the very, very marginal individual shares, it might have a slight impact, but it's so minuscule. There are a million other things that will change share prices, like, by the way, just daily volatility. I, w- I would argue that on a given day, mm-hmm. the chance the shares are up or down at you know, point something versus yesterday it's probably larger than any impact the ETF is going to have on a market. So, in, in the in the in the proportion of things to worry about, I really wouldn't worry about ETFs. Do you know whether those those that uh, again active fund managers generally who sort of kick and scream it's going to lead to market distortions and you know oh, mispricings on the market and it's an outrage and like, dude, you 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 should welcome that. I mean, isn't yeah. that 
wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, a perfectly efficient market by definition means there's no opportunity for outperformance. So anything, yes. so even if that was your belief that these things are distorting markets, it's like, mm-hmm. let's have at it. Brilliant. You know, I, I've, I've now got the opportunity to, 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 to outperform the market to a much greater degree because of all these mispricing. So it's a really spurious argument, I think. And yeah, it's not one that, that I lose any sleep over or, or think much about at all. Yep. I uh, think that's that's perfect, mate. I think the other thing too is for what it's worth, it's um, yeah, it sh- shouldn't it shouldn't matter. You shouldn't worry about. I, I can I put on record really clearly as you just did. The idea that passive indexes are somehow or passive ETFs are somehow bad for the market is absolute and complete bull dirt. It is ridiculous. It is mm-hmm. fundamentally intellectually bankrupt. They're, like, let me be really really clear. There is nothing that passive indexing does. That simply, if you and I went and buy and held the shares we already own and put them in our back pockets, wouldn't otherwise do. If we dollar cost averaged, it would make no difference. The the only that passive ETFs are somehow destroying the market is complete and utter crap. It doesn't. It's not real. Those people should be ashamed of themselves either for their intellectual vacuity or for their absolute, frankly, bald faced lies putting that stuff out there and saying that somehow passives are destroying the world and that everyone like you and I are active. We're stock pickers, right? So if we if we wanted to have a view, we wanted to join the, the bandwagon, we could say, yeah, they're terrible. Don't do that. Come and use our services instead. I will say really clearly, if you don't use our services, but you buy a passive ETF, you are not in the slightest bit impacting the market. Go and do it. But do it, fill your boots, pay low fees, yeah. do really well, retire comfortably, go fishing, go shopping. If you want to buy shares, come and ask us at The Motley Fool or Andrew at Strawband um, and you can access some information about doing that. But if you're going to buy a passive, uh, a passive ETF, do it. And, and don't for a second believe the absolute rubbish that comes out about how passive ETFs are destroying the market. It's complete. I, I, I honestly couldn't. If there's a hill to die, I'm going to die on that hill. It is absolute rubbish. Complete <laughs> lies. Complete <laughs> self-serving rubbish. How's that? Tell, tell us what you really think, Scott. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I agree. he also I agree. says, as his second question, when I buy the index or an ETF, am I buying a portion of the shares in this index, thereby reducing by a tiny amount the number of shares available? Just trying to get a handle on exactly how ETFs work. Do you want me to grab that one or you want to grab that one, Andrew? Um, I'll let you go. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure of the, the question. So, All right. So, so I'm not so sure so what I'm he's saying either. I, I'm going to take. I'm going to answer it two ways, and hope that at least one of those ways is what he was inferring. So the first thing is, if the ETF buys shares in Apple, it doesn't reduce the number of shares available in Apple any more than if I bought them and put them in my back pocket would reduce the number of shares available for Apple. There's only there's I'm going to say a thousand. There's some, there's millions of shares. There's a thousand Apple shares out there. If I buy one of them, or you buy one of them, or one of them's in an ETF, the same number of shares exists. The same number of shares is in theory available for trade. And by the way, if I if I redeem my units in the ETF, if I sell the ETF. I'm giving those. I'm putting those shares back on the market. If I buy shares in the ETF or units in the ETF, I'm taking those shares off the market. So the ETF is just think of it as a pass-through structure, right? It's a proxy for me holding them myself. Um, the ETF itself, existing or not existing, doesn't change the number of Apple shares available for sale to the average investor. Because again, if I own the ETF, I could own Apple shares instead uh, in the same number. I'm just using the ETF as a vehicle. So think of it as a pass-through. If you think about the number of ETF units or shares available, it doesn't reduce those either. In fact, they increase over time. Uh, if you put more money in an ETF, the ETF maker creates more units, so the fund gets bigger, and so the price of the ETF doesn't change on that basis. You just they they, good, they can create more, and don't think that's distorting things. By the way, it's not because again, that's a proxy, right? That's an extra. Think about it as a new person. If a new person owns Apple shares, that new person is a new unit in the ETF, and that's the the best equivalent to think about. So if you add more money, yep same as buying more shares. The units of the ETF do increase because the ETF is managing more cash. 
and each of those units represents effectively one fraction of that cash being managed, the ETF gets bigger. Same as if you give a fund manager more money, if you send him a check, the fund gets bigger, the number of fund holders gets bigger. In this case, the ETF just have, have individual the securities are not officially shares, but effectively call them shares. The number of shares increases because the assets increase. Um, everyone owns the same proportional proportional ownership. Mm. Is that is that pretty pretty good summary, man? Anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. No, no. Let's, happy with that. Okay, let's move on to a question from Chris. Then, oh man, you've obviously is Chris your? I, I'm I'm assuming this is Chris Page, Andrew's long lost brother. Hi, Scott. Glad you found an excellent co-host. Says Chris. Obviously paid to say so. Chris, you should at least declare your affiliation or your payment from Andrew. Um, also, realising you gents Check don't in concentrate too much on mining companies, which is true in general, but I have a question specific to silver miners. Now, Chris, if you were listening on Friday, there's a very good chance Andrew will talk all about miners now because he's, he's into businesses that don't make any money and commodities that don't do anything. He likes his Bitcoin. I'm sure he loves silver, so he's probably got a few. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm poking the bear. Currently, he says, some precious metal bulls are claiming there's an unappreciated shortage of silver bullion in the marketplace. Are there any silver mining firms you follow or recommend? Thanks, sirs. And that's from Chris. What do you reckon, Andrew? Any uh, silver miners on your radar? Uh, nope. Uh, so, so uh, it, it might be right. I don't know. I don't. I don't follow it too closely. There, there could well be a, a shortage of mm. of silver. Um, the, the thing to think about here, whether it's silver, gold, iron, pressure, uh, rare earths, all of this kind of stuff, is mm. that, that there are commodities. So, silver is silver is silver. It's an atomic element, right? So, it's not, it's indistinguishable. Yeah. Um, At least and, it's real iron, and, like Bitcoin, which is made up. No, oh, don't don't. <laughs> Don't wave. Yeah, that's, that's red to a bull. Um, uh, so, 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 what happens with with commodities is that when yep. the price goes up, usually because there's more demand than supplies, you know, one of the fundamental concepts of, of economics, it, it creates mm. a very powerful economic incentive for everyone to go out there and, and dig more of it up. There's heaps of it around mm. in the in the Earth's crust. Mm. And so you, you have this supply side response. So you can absolutely do really well in this kind of space if, and this is the big if, if, if you're excellent at timing these kinds of things. Because over time, and this isn't just an opinion, this, this, is, this is historical fact, you can go and check it out for yourself, that these, these commodities, whether it be silver, gold, again, anything else, pretty much trade a little bit above the, the uh, cost of production. Um, and and that's what, that will always and forever be true. So um, uh, for that reason, I find it very difficult uh, in this space. The other, the other, the other thing is as well. Just as a business, they're they're very unattractive economically. They're very capital intensive. They're subject to. They're, they're not. They're price takers. They're not price makers. So you know, whatever you sell your, Apple can control what it sells its next iPhone for. Uh, a silver miner has no choice but to accept whatever the going market price is. Right. Exactly. But yeah. their cost of production stay the same. So your margins swing all yeah. over the place. Any money that you do eventually make, you have to plow back into the next mine because every mm. every ounce of silver you take out of it the, the mine becomes a little less value so mm-hmm. so again what i would encourage people to do in this space is just go and look at there's indices for for these um sectors and just look at them over any meaningful time period and mm-hmm. while there's absolutely periods where they race up and race down over time they just do really 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 badly mm-hmm. um so so you know go, go why why i i just i just kind of think you've got the luxury of choice when it comes to investing and you should be super fussy and super 
super biased towards the, the best yep. of the best of the best. And so why why get involved in something that has demonstrably a long track record of very anemic returns? So and and the other thing to think about here as well, it's just, it's all about staying within your your wheelhouse and your mm-hmm. your uh, circle of competence. What Buffett would say. And the thing is, is that you've got to remember you're competing against people who really understand this space, yeah, um, right. you know, and, 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 and they have a very – when they look, go to invest in a silver mine, they know the cost of production. They know uh, uh, how, how much life is left in the mine. They know the cash burn. They, they, they just go into it in great details. And generally speaking, this isn't, um, this isn't to, to pick on, on, on the listener here, but generally speaking, when I, when I hear someone pitch a, a mining stock to me, it's very first order kind of thinking it's like oh there's a shortage therefore i'm going to buy it it's it, and it's like mm, well mm. Y- yes but there's a hell of a lot there's a lot of silver miners out there some will go really well some of them won't go well even under that general thesis if it if it proves correct um mm. uh, so it's, it's just it's just a big fat pass so i agree from a long-term perspective um I think that the question you raise, or the topic, your point you raise is, do you really know more than the average bear? And I've used the average bear three times already, so let's retire that phrase for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, do, do you really know, know more than the rest of the market? Because if you're punting on commodities, you're generally speaking trading against someone else who's got a different view, and you better hope you know better than they do. With shares over time, the good news is that they're going to go up because businesses make more profit. So even if you're kind of wrong... Um, you, you, you tend not, I mean, some shares do actually just lose money in total, right? Look at David Jones or, um, or, or JB Hyatt, not JB Hyatt, Dick Smith Electronics. Um, so, you know, so, some do lose money overall. But broadly speaking, um, the index goes up over time. And so you might make a little bit less or a little bit more than the other guy, but you're probably going to make money. If you're doing commodities or, or currencies, you're kind of betting against somebody else and those futures contracts there that, you know, bet on the movement rather than the actual underlying price. Mm. So if it goes up, you win. If it goes down, you lose or vice versa, rather than just making a bit less or losing a bit more, you know? And so that's kind of important because um, you are playing a different game than if you're investing in shares. Now, you talk about silver mining companies, to be fair, mm. Chris, so that's not necessarily true, although the, the problem and the advantage of the companies that mine this stuff is there a leverage play because they've got the cost right so if the costs go up 10 percent chance our profits probably go up 20 30 40 percent if costs go down 10 percent you're probably going to have your profits fall by the same amount because you've got costs there so let, let's take an example right 100 let's take a hundred ounce of silver just for the fun of it if the cost goes down or the price goes down 10 percent the price goes from 100 to 90 but if it costs you 50 bucks to mine your profit goes from 50 to 40 in other words, it goes down by 20%, well, the price only goes down 10 The same is true mm. if the price goes up, of course. So just be mindful of that because you are buying a leverage play on the commodity. The question, I suppose, is whether these experts are right and whether you think whether you can know they're right because if it was absolutely true, the price would already reflect that. That's the other thing, right? <laughs> if it's known, mm. it's already in the price or it should already be in the price because the markets mm. are pretty efficient. So if there is a shortage of silver, the market should already be pricing silver at a higher price. Now, maybe the market hasn't caught on and maybe you're early and these experts are right. And maybe there is an opportunity. There will be from time to time. Maybe you, the experts are wrong, in which case it's not in the price because it doesn't deserve to be in the price. And again, in which case you'll lose money. And that's that's where this is a little bit difficult. You've got to you've got to be right about the issue and then right about the price and then right about the timing. And I've got to say that's too hard. I just don't do it. It's too hard for me to do. I just literally don't do it because I can't. And I don't know many people who genuinely can reliably, regularly, 
and with enough confidence and frankly enough upside to make the whole exercise worth it because um, trading commodities is just a stupidly difficult thing to do because again for every for every winner there's a, effectively a loser because you're betting on the movement the change in price not just the absolute price because you probably don't own the commodity if you bought it at x dollars and sold it at y dollars you actually own the physical commodity that's probably different otherwise you're betting on the price movement and again if the experts are right it's already in the price if the experts are wrong it's not already in the price either way it's a very very tough way to make a dollar yeah any more on that yeah. ram no, but the, I, I will say this though, because I, I do cop a bit of flack uh, from from people who are really into this space. And I, it's, again, it's I always come back to it's each to their own. You know, it's sort of like there's nothing wrong with investing in a space. If you like mining, if you like silver, great. I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but but just mm. understand the challenges there, the things that you have to think about, and just go go below the surface of. Someone reckons the price of silver is going to go up over the next three or four months. And again, I know, I know Chris, you're not you're not saying yeah. that, but I'm, I'm generalising here. Um, it, yeah. it, it is it's it's not that easy. If, and if it was that easy, you know, we'd all be making squillions off mining stocks. But but again, <laughs> history demonstrates that that is that the opposite is true. So so just just right, be very right. careful. Good point. Very good point. Um, by the way, I'm 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 less sanguine. I'm happy to tell people I think they're wrong. Uh, sometimes it's needs to their own. Sometimes they're just outright wrong. Uh, I, it's just really quickly too. Here's the other thing: resources companies, as a rule, um, and, and frankly, the data supports this, don't uh, end up, tend to underperform the market. So you're also fishing in a pond that is less yep. uh, attractive to investors as a whole. Now maybe, maybe it changes. Maybe this time it is different. But famously, as Sir John Templeton said a couple of centuries ago, the four most dangerous words in investing are this time it's different. Um, so be careful. Uh, but because resources companies tend not to make more money than the overall market and create more value in the overall market, you're fishing in a less attractive pond to start with, and that probably just means your odds are probably lower, generally speaking. Those are generalizations. Yeah, yeah. and I'll, I'll say one other thing here, which it seems like a bit of a counterpoint, but isn't. So if you were to look on any point in time and sort of say, what was the best performing stock over the last five years? I'd, I'd bet pretty strongly it's going to be a mining company or a, a biotech mm. company. It's generally true. I'm, I'm not talking about the top, top 200 here. I'm generally talking when you talk about the market as a whole, you'll find some little stock that went from 0.1 of a cent up to 50 cents or something like that. I mean, the, the percentage returns are insane. So whenever you do a, a scan of the market, looking for performance over the last three, five years, <laughs> it's always a yeah. minor uh, that tops it. So it seems a bit of a counterpoint to what we're saying here. Um, yeah. Years ago, I did a bit of a distribution analysis on this kind of stuff, and it's it's true that that is that is that is what happens. But again, it's it's a bit of a lottery ticket. So mm-hmm. for every every stock that goes from one cent to fifty cents, you've got you've got nine hundred ninety nine that goes from you know ten cents to point one of a cent. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's the when you're talking about the average, uh, the typical, it's just like you've got a very, very slim chance of, of catching that one that, that really does. It's generally something that it's, we're an explorer. We've got absolutely, uh, you know, very little assets. We've got absolutely no cash flow. And then we literally strike gold. Um, and then that, that can be an insane return. It can be really, really, really <laughs> high. But it is, it is yeah, the exception yeah. to the rule. So you have to, you have to bear that in mind. And again, the, the data shows it out. Mate, let's, uh, let's move on to a question from Callum. Callum says, uh, G'day, Scott. One for the mailbag here. First, I'm a huge fan of yourself on the podcast. Thank you, mate. I really value your insight and opinions you have offered. It has been of great benefit to me over the past year since I began investing. Well done. Unfortunately, Callum wrecks it, mate, by giving you a wrap. He says, also, I was very pleased to see Andrew rejoin the podcast. I share a similar <laughs> investment philosophy. Hopefully you don't buy in Bitcoin. So hearing from him always provides food for thought. I have been using Strawman for just over six months. Although my satellite portfolio on Strawman is struggling of late, but it will come good. Ha ha, he says with an exclamation mark. All right, here's his question. I find well it difficult 
Keeping on top, yeah, exactly. I keep it difficult. Find, keep, I start again. Find it difficult. Keeping on top of the plethora of information out there, especially when trying to manage a portfolio of roughly ten to twenty stocks. Keeping tabs on their announcements, news, and general activities can be quite time-consuming and sometimes overwhelming, especially when scanning the broader market for other potential investments. Similar to Andrew and yourself, I'm in it for the long term. So I do my best not to focus too much on share price movements and fluctuations. Yeah, good work, but it's hard though, isn't it? Rather, I like to take into account large macro trends and follow company fundamentals to ensure my thesis is still active and true. What advice do you have, he asks, for retail investors like myself who work a full-time job or maybe time poor through other means, keeping on top of and managing their stocks and portfolios while still keeping on an eye on the market and on watch lists? Are there a few things you look for or to? Bearing in mind, he says, I only set a portion of my monthly pay to invest, so I like to ensure my conviction is high. Again, thanks for already making things easier. Keep up the awesome work. Cheers, Callum. Very, very kind, Callum. Thank you, mate. Um, that's a really great question, mate. Time is one of those things that no matter how wealthy or otherwise we are, we've got the same amount of, and some of us have even less than others because we've got kids and jobs and other things going on. How does Callum keep track of what's going on on the market to make sure he's got the right amount of knowledge and understanding of his high conviction stocks and help him find more. Yeah, Callum, I really sympathise. It's hard. I mean, today more than ever, there's just a deluge of, of information mm-hmm. that, that's <laughs> out there. Um, and I think over time, you, you gain experience, you, you gain, you, you develop filters so you, you can, you learn to mm. know what to ignore and, and not what to. So he's already pointed out that, you know, usually day-to-day share price moves you can you can ignore them i think generally speaking the, the big things for me are, are, are earnings results and that so usually twice a year sometimes four times a year for, for mm-hmm. certain companies they're the big ones right that's when you get to look under yeah. the hood and see how the, yep. the investment is performing so i think i think that is always worth a read and and it doesn't i mean even with with 20 stocks you know when you when you're really only sort of doing it once every six months or so it's mm-hmm. it's it's not a huge amount of work and I think the other thing too, for me, has been a great benefit is is trying to filter out. I think the, the best companies in the world um, always have challenges and hiccups and speed bumps and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but it's trying to filter out what is structurally important as opposed to might be what better class is short-term cyclical kind of factor. Um, mm. Recently talking about CSL in this regard. So CSL has come back quite a bit lately. Um, okay. And, you know, yeah. And, 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 and you sort of, geez, what's wrong? Is, it, is there something going on there? Is, is, there, is there a problem with the business? Well, yeah, there's, there's some challenges that are, that are happening. Mm. Namely, with COVID, there's been a lot lower collection rates and, you know, they, they deal in blood plasma and, that, you know, and they've just got less input. And that's, that's harder and their, their earnings have, have suffered as a result. Does that point to the strength of the company, its long-term cash generation ability or anything? Mm. Mm. Absolutely not. I mean, this is a business that's probably the best performing uh, blue chip stock uh, ever. Um, it doesn't get nearly enough uh, credit. I mean, it's grown its earnings compound at 17% per annum over the last 10 years. It was already a big company uh, then. And and yet, over that time, it's fallen 35%, I think, in 2018. 2016, it pulled back by about 20% or so. And I remember very vividly at the time, we had all these very smart investment bankers talking about FX headwinds and all this other kind of stuff. And again, let me state... These are real impacts that really impact the business. Mm. But 
but I also know that I can dismiss that very quickly because yeah, you know what, currency fluctuates around. It does that kind of thing. It's mm. it doesn't it doesn't speak to what's important. So what is important? Um, I think anything that has a material impact on, again on the long term cash generation ability of a mm. business. That's, that's a big statement, and you can you can dig into that into a lot. But that that for me is the case. I'm not if if a retailer has a disappointing quarter because uh, you know the economy was in a, in a little bit of a funk. Well, it's just that's just what happens with those those kinds of stocks. If if a company with overseas exposures facing a bit of headwinds because the Aussie dollars had a bit of strength, well, that that sucks. But again, it doesn't it doesn't speak speak to the strength or quality uh, of the business. So it's about it's about trying to find out what's structurally important as opposed to what is fleeting and 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 less impactful over time. Love that, mate. I think that's, I think that's spot on. Um, yeah, I would say to Callum, just make sure you don't major in the minors. So you've you already made this point, Ramos. I'm going to basically repeat the same thing. Um, you want to be... You want to be making sure the things you're focusing on are the things that actually matter. And it's probable... Here's what I would say. I would put... I'm going to make a number up, mate. 10 times as much effort into finding a new idea rather than tracking the ones I already own. Because if I've done enough research on a company to understand the business, how it makes its money, its pros and cons, its risks and opportunities, its competitive landscape, all that stuff, and its financials, there's a decent chance that I'm only kind of just adding an extra data. You know, I've, got, I've created this big wealth of data, information, right? I've got it in my head or on paper or wherever I've written it down. And I know why I own the stock or why I want to buy the stock, and then I buy it. At that point, you kind of just you kind of just make sure it's still on track, right? It's like driving a car. You know, once you get onto the freeway, there's little movements of the hands where you need to keep the car in the lane. Yeah, you, know, you get to the freeway, you got to turn left, turn right, go across the bridge. You know, turn left at Smith Street, and then you're on the freeway. Once you're there, once you bought the stock, generally speaking, yeah, there's the occasional off ramp. Maybe you might want to take it if things are meaningfully different. I'm going to torture the metaphor horribly here, um, <laughs> but you know, once you're on the freeway, it's just those little movements of the hands just to keep yourself in the lane. And I think that's how you should consider the data you're getting on a regular basis. Most announcements are just irrelevant. Like, we, we, I, there's a List Corp, free plug for a mob I don't know who owns it or what they do. What they do, we've got, I, we have subscriptions to List Corp. You just, it's a mailing list of ASX announcements, right? I open mm. all of the ones I get for the companies that we recommend because it's my job. I, some of the, I, I, most of them, some of the I own are businesses we recommend because that's the other, that's the other thing that makes it easier for me personally. Um, but I skim it and I move on. It's really, really, really rare. It causes me to do anything other than go, okay, cool. Whether it's good news or, or, or not so good news, unless it's thesis changing, it's kind of irrelevant, right? And and so I would just encourage you, Callum, to spend, um, I'll make, pick a number, 10 times as much time getting the right ideas in your watch list and, and working out what price you want to pay for them roughly than trying to keep on top of them. If if these businesses, you know, Buffett's favourite holder period forever, as you've said before, Ram, and the, the simple reality of owning these companies is, you know, what what is going to, maybe I should up front, why would I sell this? And then all you're looking for is reasons is, is data that confirms that sell thesis effectively. If they're not there, yeah. let it do its thing. You know, it just I, I get the intent, Callum. You're a younger investor in terms of your experience. I've said before, mate, and Rem, you know this. I had Excel spreadsheets with I want to say sixty different ratios calculated at one point. <laughs> and this is in the really really old days. We had to actually uh, you had to call the company, ask them for them to mail them mail you copy of annual reports. That's how old I am. They weren't even online when I started investing, or at least if they were, it's like one year's worth. So I would call them, get five years worth of data. I would type all that stuff, literally line by line into a spreadsheet, revenue, cost of goods, gross margin. And I calculate the gross margin. I calculate cash conversion. I calculate days sales outstanding. And I calculate returns on equity and invested capital. Mate, I had, I had spreadsheets up the wazoo. 
And I kind of, over time, you just get the the, the, the sense of, actually, none of this actually matters because if cash conversion changes by 5% or if day sales outstanding go up by 2 or if you know gross margin goes from 49.3 to 48.6, it's just not that relevant. Like, it just doesn't matter. Um, it's whether or not the company is delivering on what it said it was going to do. Are you buying growth? Are you buying value? Do you expect this? Do you expect that? So all I would say is, mate, is try and ignore most of the data or at least skim it and go, cool, okay, move on. Put it at the data bank, yep. let it marinate the subconscious, but don't spend too much time on it. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, writing it down. I've, I've always been such a strong advocate yeah. of, of keeping an investment diary. It just, it has so much value. The very act of writing it down clarifies your thinking and 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 and, and highlights to you holes in, in, in your thinking. Um, but it also gives you this really important touchstone that when things get really wild and woolly out there in the market, that you can come back and go, no, listen, I bought my shares for these reasons under these broad expectations. Is anything different today? Now, maybe it is, but but now, I, but now I've got something to contrast it to other than just what the share price has been doing. And as you rightly say, when you before you even buy the share, list the reasons that you would sell the share. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if nothing nothing has changed on that front, then 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 why would you do anything? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's um yeah. the amount of the amount of people I, I come across who sort of say, oh, I really love this company. I you know I think in ten years time they're going to be this and it's going to be really fantastic and I'm going that's great. And you go oh cool cool. And then you know, you speak to them a month later and they oh I sold out because shares went down six percent. You think what? Like it it doesn't you know we, we we do things for all the right reasons and then uh, to begin mm-hmm. with and then because of the market's always throwing this all. All this noise at us, we then end up doing often very stupid things. But that writing it out and and having that investment diary is just the most the best thing you can do to improve your investment returns. Mm. Um, do it. Make sure you do it, and and then and then you'll 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 avoid a lot of these pitfalls. You're going to tell me strawman.com lets you uh, write your investment thesis down and share it with other people, aren't you? <laughs> I was. I wasn't going to say it, but now that you mention it, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, that's it's, look. I don't want to make it about that, but I guess that that's the point. And is yeah. that is that there's too often if I'm on Reddit or any of these other places, is oh, buy it, it's going to up three hundred percent. I'm like, well, okay, but why? You know, you might be right. I'm not, I'm not that you know pessimistic or negative or cynical, but just, just I want to understand your thesis. I want to understand yeah. what it yeah. is, yeah. Um, and and then I can actually contextualize y- your your view on it. And and yeah. and it's it's handy for others when evaluating your view, but it, but forget other people do it for yourself um that's that's why it matters and it's 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 the most important thing you can do yep nice get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m let's move on mate question from dylan this time uh dylan says hey scott i haven't listened to last week's episode yet what dylan no he says so so forgive me shame (laughs) exactly forgive me this is if this has been covered off already we haven't so that's okay um, we're not going to answer this question in full, but we will ask the question. We'll come back to it. On Andrew's first pod with you, he mentioned he is pro-shorting. <laughs> and then he says, and you are against it, as we well know. I think he means I've ranted about it before, Andrew. I think that's what Dylan's saying. <laughs> you might um, be right on that, yeah. <laughs> Dylan says, Andrew then jokingly said, you two could do a whole episode on the pros and cons of it. In all seriousness, asked Dylan, can you do a I'm segment can. or discuss it in depth? I'm not looking to venture into the shorting market, but I'm curious to hear both of your takes on it. I'll save the standard compliments and let you just know I listen to both episodes of the pod every week. 
Cheers, <laughs> Dylan. Dylan, don't save the don't save the compliments. We want to hear the compliments, mate. We have egos. We have you know we're people too. Uh, no, thank you, mate. Thank you for the very kind words, mate. We should we'll, we'll actually bookmark that one. Uh, we're not going to do it now, but we will come back to a, a shortish segment, longish segment on shorting. Maybe there's less news around one one week. We've got a truckload of mailbags, so we're not going to spend too much time on it. Um, I will though give you a thirty second go at the elevator pitch at why shorting should be allowed. I'll give a 30-second one against it and then we will, uh, we'll hold the longer conversation. We'll wet, up, wet Dylan's appetite and other people's. Um, why the hell would you be so wrong as to think shorting was a good idea, Andrew? <laughs> I don't... Look, I, let me start off by saying I don't short. I've never shorted. I've got no intention of shortening because with, with shorting... Um, you, Time frame really matters, and there's a cost mm. of of it on on the way through. So, I'm, and I I am I am the world's worst market timer, and I don't even try to do it. In fact, so that's that's the beauty of being long. You just have to be right eventually. Whereas <laughs> with, with being short, you have to be right in a very uh, specific uh, amount yeah. of time. I look at GameStop, right? So, so I'm I'm not, I'm not I'm not for it as a concept though, and whether or not it should be allowed. Uh, you know, I, I take this view that. You know, trading is, I forget who said this, but it was something along the lines of a mutual act of capitalism between consenting adults. So <laughs> if, if people, and I thought that's, geez, that's a nice, that is a nice way of looking at, at these kinds of things. So if someone sure. wants to go out there and say, I think this is overpriced and I want to, I want to bet on it going down, it's like, I, don't, I wouldn't do it. Um, I think it's crazy. But if you want to do it, I think fair enough. And there's actually been some really good examples of, of you know, um, Shorters out there exposing frauds and 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 really actually bringing more efficiency to the market. Um, I do get that people, um, uh, you know, they 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 are obviously acting with self interest. They put a lot of scary things out there just for their own um, mm. benefit. But I would also say, well, that happens on the long side all the time. I mean, how many times do you see someone out there spruiking, talking their book, you know, and 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 ramping things up because they they are long on it? Well, it's like, well, yeah, that's it's the same thing, right? So mm. I kind of I kind of think well, if you can do one, why can't why can't I why can't I do the others? What mm. what harm is done? By the way, people tend to think that shorters are always right. They're not. They're wrong all yeah. of the time. Yeah. And and eventually, it's this whole in the short term the market's a voting machine, the long term it's it's a weighing machine kind of thing. And and if if it turns out that there was nothing to that short thesis, well, guess what? You know the the, the market will mm. will reflect that. So uh, you know, and if if it, if it means it brings a bit more short term volatility uh, on the way through, so be it. I, I have often said that volatility is is an opportunity. It's not a risk. Um, so I, I don't I don't really care. I actually agree with almost everything you said with a different outcome. So the first thing you said is the, the act of capitalism between two consulting adults. I completely agree. Change of ownership interest is wonderful. I sell, you buy, you sell, I buy, wonderful. The fact yep. that I somehow borrow your shares and sell them and then promise to buy them back later is not an act of capitalism. It's a bastardization of capitalism in my, my, my mm-hmm, uh, humble mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, I think it's one of those things that simply isn't necessary for the functioning of the capital markets or the capital system. Uh, I buy, you sell, you buy, I sell. That's the point, right? When you start to create derivatives of these things to profit from movements alone, that's when the whole market starts to become, you know, people talk about casino capitalism and my old man used to say, the stock market is just a casino. And you know what? When people are doing derivatives and stupid trades, that's it. I mean, tell, tell me tell me he's wrong, right? I think the, the, the my biggest concern with shorting is not, if you want to go and lose money, knock yourself out. What way, or, or make money, what, what worries me is from a, from a market, mechanism perspective and more importantly actually from people like our listeners who might be sucked into this i think if it's a not very useful or necessary thing 
Call it gambling. Let the bookies do it. If you want to bet on the price movements of shares, you know, let's let's stop pretending it's investing and, and somehow gentrified and respectified, which is not a word, but it is now, uh, by the fact it's on the oh, it's on the ASX, I'm investing. But if I'm betting on the dogs, I'm down the track, it's on the TAB and I'm gambling, right? And we pretend that shorting is investing, which in a whole lot of other derivative trading is investing as well. I think that's the first thing. I don't think we should we should dignify it by pretending it's investing. The other thing for me is... No, it's not it, investing. Because it distorts what happens with the market themselves. And this is a bit of a round, I'll make it short. Um, the, the, I agree with your point about volatility, mate. We can't avoid it. And I don't think we should be a nanny state. And you, you, know, you know, I've had this view for a while. But what I do think is that there are people who see their shares shorted, sell out in fear just in case the shorters are right. And the shorter ends up making the money by scaring people out of their shares. And I think that is a really, really ugly part of capitalism that frankly is not going to impact you and me because you and I have been doing volatility for such a long time that we're used to it, right? We don't get scared by it. It's okay. But think about the people who sold in fear during the COVID-induced recession. That was a real issue, real market issue. If you have a, a company whose shares fall 20 or 30% when a scary 40-page short report is released with emotive language and scary photos, that's basically designed that, – that, that act I – won't, I won't name any in particular so I don't get sued by anybody – those acts are specifically designed to create fear so that they, the share price will fall and those shorters can make money. And that is, let's be clear, market manipulation. They can pretend it's not. It may even not even be legally you know, letter of the law manipulation. But that is what they're trying to do. And the fact that shorting becomes that, I think, is really, really bad for the market. I don't think the market is served by the existence of that. Now, I do I, – I would ban it outright. I just don't think it's necessary. But I would also say I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tiring every shorter with that brush. To be really, really clear, there are some smart, respectable, normal people who choose to try and make their money from shorting. And I don't, I don't blame them for trying to do that. So I'm not saying – and they're good people. They're, they, there are some really famous, well-known shorters who I really respect as investors. And I don't want to tar them with that brush at all. Uh, so to be really, really clear, that's I'm not doing that. Um, but the fact that that exists, the fact that it's being distorted and misused. If you let, you know, the great, the other great thing about capitalism, it finds ways to screw people. That's what, it, you know, realistically, mm-hmm. like the market when it works is supposed to be supply demand, price goes up, demand, you know, demand goes down, supply goes up, price, yeah, you know, that's supposed to happen. As soon as you let some people in expensive suits in glass office towers, you know, play with these dials to try and find a way to make some money, they're going to. And I think shorting is frankly makes more money for the uh, manipulators slash shiny bums than it does for the rest of us. And I think there is a real reason to say, you know what, we just don't need it in our market. It doesn't serve a fundamental purpose that exceeds the risks and costs for other people. How's that? I I just I just don't get the difference between that and the long side. So if I'm a big no no fundy or you know institution mentions any stock that they're accumulating, right? Like why would yeah. you? You're trying to buy the thing. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, now okay. I've got a position. Now I've got a position. Yep. I've built up yep. a big position. And guess what? What do they all do? They all publicize it. They get yep. on TV. They write an article. They say, this is a great stock. Great. And this is why we've got a big investment in it. Totally. Well, same thing. Same. It's, it's exactly the same thing to my mind. And again, With most the of them, a lot of them are doing it for genuine reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Totally. totally. No, you're right. And, and you're right. And the, and the bulls are absolutely... There's plenty of penny stock pump and dumpers out there, by the way, too. Like, you're talking about the respectable people who genuinely think, oh, I own Kogan. I've said a million times in this podcast, I like Kogan. If the share price goes up, I make money. If I convince the people to buy it and that pushes the share price up a little bit, then arguably I'm conflicted. Well, not arguably, I am conflicted. That's absolutely true, right? No issue with that whatsoever. And that's that's absolutely real. Is it ideal? No, not really. Right. Um, but that's, that's the market we're in. I think the difference for me is the motivation, the implication, and the impact. So... We talked about the motivation before. 
um, there aren't many respectable or yeah, here's the thing, right? So the problem is short cases get the attention. That that's my that's my key issue, right? So they get reported more highly. They get the report above the fold and the AFR and the Age and the SMH and the Australian and whatever else. So and so is short on this company. You know, let's use um, WiseTech, right? So and so has released a forty page short report about these phantom offices and the fact it's all dodgy accounting and all that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know WiseTech. I don't know if you do, but I'll use an example because I don't own it. I do own at least one company that's been shorted. And so I won't, but I won't, so I won't bring that in. Um, so there's that, right? And you go, okay, fine. That's what's going on there. Um, so the report gets, it gets reported. If I, if I was to produce a long report, i.e. a report supporting it, it probably wouldn't get reported. And if it did, the shares might go up 0.1 of 1%, right? I've, I've banged on about Kogan enough. And frankly, the share price is still falling. That's absolute proof no one's listening to me, <laughs> right? If I was to, if I, if someone we should, we should play a Kogan massive, drinking game just quietly. So, exactly. If we if we did a uh, if we did a short case on Kogan with with you know uh, objective or sorry uh, non objective subjective comments some some nice colourful language or some photos and saying I think it's a fraud it's going to zero the share price would fall twenty percent and it would get reported on the front page of the AFR and so to my mind the distinction between them is the impact it has because we talked about behavioural finance at the beginning right the behavioural elements mm-hmm. of what's going to happen in that circumstance are just dramatically different now if I also say buy Kogan. Maybe someone does, maybe they don't. And that's kind of all that happens, right? Share price, maybe it moves, maybe it doesn't. If I say, short report Kogan, shares go down 20%, someone out there says, oh my God, maybe it's a fraud, I better sell. That, that's a very different mechanic. The impact it has. So I would like, like all these things. The, academically, is it, is it the same? Kind of almost, yeah, I think you're right. But the impact of that, the, the result of, the, of both activities is so dramatically different, so dramatically asymmetrical. But I think that in itself is enough, right? So there's something, it's, it's like, you know, people don't kill people, guns kill people. That that whole palaver, right? Is it true? Sure. Mm. Can guns be mm. used properly? Sure. But at some point in society, we choose to make rules to limit the impact of the misuse or the accidental use or the whatever and simply say, you know what? We, we actually are mature enough to say, you know, academically, would it be the same thing? Sure. In reality, does it have a bigger impact? Yeah, it does. And if the capital markets are supposed to function well, for some sort of purpose, to my mind, shorting actually subverts that purpose. It creates more grief than it than it resolves, and it's simply not necessary for the proper functioning of capital markets. So, I think if you've got something that sort of doesn't add much but takes away a lot potentially, that's enough for me to say, you know what, we just don't need it. Let's get rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> with this is meant Andrew, to be a short segment, I'm right. so, so I'm going. going. <laughs> Sorry, mate, go on. Uh, well, I, uh, one of the interesting uh, what was the one the recent was a near map. Um, they had a short report out uh, back right. in February or something. Um, but you know, look at the chart. And, like, uh, it's actually really yeah. hard to spot where it actually happened. And shares yeah. are basically at where they were a week before the short report came out. You know, it, it, it just it more. It, 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 you're right that it does get more attention. Um, but again, I, I would also say that there is. I'm, I am not a libertarian, right? I, I, I am not someone who is is says you should be able to do whatever you want at any, any, any point in time. But I would say this: that if you were going to be a direct investor in the market. You know, this is this is the game that you are playing. There's a lot of bad actors out there. There's a lot of crazy things that sort of happen, and it's it's mm. it's even if you take short selling away, there's all of that kind of terrible stuff that that is mm. out there, and you get all this volatility, and it's all very scary. It's just kind of like that's that's the game, and and if if if, if that's too much for you, and 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 there's no no disrespect if it is. Um, it's it's mm. definitely not for everyone. Then 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 don't play it, you know. But if but if you are, then that's that's just part of the landscape. And 
and frankly, it, it can be a wonderful opportunity um, when when these short sellers more often than not that, get, get proven yeah, wrong. It's definitely a huge opportunity. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's kind of like I, I just I try to I try to play games where I feel as though I've got something of an edge in mm. it. So I've got I've got no edge in predicting what near map's going to do over the next week, month, year, or, or, or something. Or I've got I've got no right. chance in predicting. You know uh, any of these, but 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 what I I always come back to these these what I think of general truisms that over time economies societies improve, good yeah. companies continue to perform, and that the best thing I can do to give myself an edge is to try and perhaps understand a business a little bit better than than the average person and invest over mm-hmm. a longer time frame and just I just play some time arbitrage really, and and let 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 people do anything they want within that. I I just I don't. I don't care, I guess. Maybe that's a very selfish uh, uh, view to have on the market. And if you're the kind of person that is going to buy something and freak out because someone has, has, has proffered an, 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 a different view, you're not mm. the kind of person that should invest in shares. And that's not a mean thing to say. It's, it's like if you don't like heights, you shouldn't go bungee jumping. You know, it's, it's just mm. you, you have to know thyself um, is, is something that is a very important thing. And, and if, if these are the kind of thing that's going to freak you out and, and, and make you second guess yourself and lead you to making bad decisions, you know, regularly buy an ETF and, and go and do other things that are more more aligned to to your uh, personality. Uh, just you know, the world is the way it is. Humans are the, are the way they are. Uh, mm. Let them do it as long as it's not illegal. As long as where where I have the problem with it, and this goes on long and short side, is when people uh, are presenting falsehoods and lying. I mean, that's that's mm. an absolute problem. But if someone's putting a genuine view forward, and they've got a they've got a, a detailed report which sort of outlines their thinking, I, I actually welcome it. I think great. That's that's a real. I, I said I said uh, on Friday's podcast, I I, I I genuinely try to seek out the counter view um, to to challenge mm. to challenge my thinking, and this is an opportunity to do that. So you know, I don't. know. We should probably put a pin in it at this point, but but uh, each to their own. Yeah, except you're wrong. Uh, listen, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Look, it, you know, it, it comes out of a philosophical view at the end of the day. You're, you're basically saying, look, the market should be allowed to operate freely. You should know the rules when you walk in. Uh, my view is just that people walk in without knowing the rules or, or understanding the rules well enough and get themselves in trouble. And the question really is, where do you put the guardrails? Right? Do you do you kind of let them learn by experience, or do you give them some degree of protection? And that's 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 the fundamental difference. We just differ on that view, which is completely reasonable. As I said, you, you're allowed yeah. to be wrong. Uh, let's move on to a question <laughs> from Jeff, mate. Um, I, I like this question. This is, a, this is a big macro question. We might make this the last one of the podcast, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff says, hey, Scott, love your work. Thank you, mate. I'm sitting here working out my and my wife's future. Oh, okay, good luck. Things are very good, he says. But with all the money being spent by governments to keep COVID at bay and keep our economies afloat, I'm wondering who in the end is going to pay? Someone always pays, says Jeff. So when is the bill due and who is going to pay it? Janet Yellen seems to think that corporate tax will do it, but they pass their expenses on to the little guys anyway. Cheers, Jeff. That's a that's a that's a big meaty question to get out our teeth into, Andrew, because it matters, right? To, to Jeff's point, depending on how this plays out, there's a massive range of outcomes from no one pays somehow, through to we all pay, through to and as he thinks about his future, both the company's investing, but I think he's probably thinking even more broadly than that, right? Like, think about, you know, you're planning your financial future over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on who pays, how they pay, where they pay, what they pay, um, that kind of Im- can impact on decisions we make as investors, the way we plan our futures, the expectations we have on on prices and stock returns. Who pays, Andrew? Oh, man. This is, it's <laughs> such a big question, and it's one that every time I sort of 
try to get closer to, it just gets it's harder for me. There's a real rabbit hole to go down here. Mm. You end up finding your, yourself in, in like, you know, reading about modern monetary theory and, uh, you know, it's... it's, it's, it's it, it, uh, the, I, I tend to be pretty agnostic towards mm. this stuff. I, 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 think, I think, obviously, um, governments should should and central banks should do things to help stabilize uh, economies and to mm. to lead to increased prosperity and they should do it in a judicious and, and, and sensible way and they can do some really dumb things potentially that could destroy us all or they can do some really smart things that that help smooth over some really nasty mm. um things and 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 that debate just goes around and around and around and around and around <laughs> um as long as i've been doing this this has always been yeah, you know, yeah. people worrying about the debt, the current account deficit, all of these yeah, kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, I, look, I, 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 I don't know. Can I say that? I don't. I don't. You can absolutely. I don't know. I, and and, yeah. and 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 at the end of the day, I, I kind of stick to my knitting. So let let's say that the the, the you know Janet Yellen or the the Fed over in the US is doing some really serious things and it's going to lead to hyperinflation and and all the rest of that. Well, it's just like geez, that's really scary. And yep, definitely that's that's mm. that's a possibility. Um, but at the same time, it. it where is my money invested? What what is? And it's a big question, really. Is like, what is value? There's a big question yeah. for you. Yeah. Now, let's let's say all of that happens, but I own something that is genuinely a cash gushing machine. You know, now mm. that might mm. get denominated differently under different mm. monetary environments and the rest of it. But what I own at the end of the day genuinely holds value. And in fact, in inflationary environments, um, shares can be really great, great. Uh, protectors of that kind of stuff so i don't i i i find it a very interesting fascinating area one that i have no expertise on whatsoever <laughs> one that i tend to be pretty yeah. sanguine on and i just yeah. i just tend to think well that's kind of largely outside of my control so let's just focus on owning really really high quality assets i don't know is yeah. that silly no i think i think that's fair i i do <laughs> i do wonder if you if you knew inflation was going to be plus ten or minus five though, would you not make any changes to your portfolio? I mean, I just to just to kind of push you a bit further on this one, uh, I'll I'll throw my two bobs in at some point. But to Jeff's point, mm. uh, you know there are, I think you're right. If you don't know, and we don't know, the answer is kind of just try and be roughly right, which I think is probably the best answer anyway. But just to just to to flesh out Jeff, Jeff's question and to push you a little bit further on that. There are circumstances if you knew if you knew we were going to have deflation for an extended period of time because of the amount of debt, or if you knew we were going to have inflation for a period of time because of the amount of quantitative easing or or, or kind of the price mechanisms being created by low low interest rates. Arguably, there would be assets I would buy or sell um, to take advantage of that. And so, to some degree, if you did know had a view of who might pay, you might skew your portfolio one way or the other to kind of account for what you expect to be some sort of future reality. Is it the case you just don't bother trying to work it out? You don't have a view? You think that instinctively the stuff you own is right for the times that are coming? How, how would you kind of respond to a plus five, minus, or minus five, plus 10 inflation environment differently potentially when it comes to a portfolio? Because I mean, those are the extremes, of course. But in a higher yeah. inflation or lower inflation environment, you might do different things. Yeah, that, that that's true. And and look, I guess to, to your question, if if I knew what the inflationary environment was going to be, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. right? So you tell yeah. me that you, you look in your crystal ball and or you come back in your time machine and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. It's like, okay, yeah. that's really yeah. useful information. On, but but we don't have that. And 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 as long as I've been, it's over twenty years now. You know, and there's there's always been this this narrative has sort of been mm -hmm. going around. That doesn't mean that it can't eventually be right. By the way, but but I know that at, at the same time. 
um, and, and super smart people who make really great cases. I used to really obsess over this kind of stuff and it used to freak me out all the time and then what do I do, what do I do? But I, mm-hmm. as you said, practically, I always kind of land back at the same point. It's like, well, I'm basically going to keep doing what I'm going to do. There's things I could do better had I known what was going to happen, but... You know, this this can could potentially never become an issue or just kick down the road for another 10 or 15 years. And in the meantime, maybe I lose out on 10 or 15% compound over that period. So um, I, I think what I what I always try and do is is mm. try and avoid in investments with with big binary outcomes that could become undone by these these very uh, difficult yeah. uh, slippery factors. Um, so you know, most of the shares I've got, all of the shares I think that I've they've got all the investments I've got. I don't think that any of them are going to become completely undone under either mm. one scenario or another. Um, they'll, they'll definitely have impacts, right? And they'll definitely perform yeah, right. better under one scenario than another. But I'm probably, I mean, investing is not about perfection, right? It's not about saying what is the best theoretical return that I will, that I will get and let's, let's do that. But it's, it's about sort of saying, you know, have I achieved an adequate return relative to the risk I've taken and the effort that I've put in? And, and you know, maybe that's not going to be the highest in the world, but if it's if it's better than the market average, I'm a very, very happy camper. I like that, mate. I think, um, like, I kind of agree. I, I think there are some things I would think about, though. Here's the problem. So to to your point, mate, and, and Jeff, the hard part is going to be no one knows. And I kind of ranted on Friday about the experts who knew or, or keep knowing the thing that's going to happen and they are, they are remarkably rigid even in, in the face of disconfirming evidence of their views, right? They ignore the disconfirming evidence, they hype up the confirming evidence and then try and you know, double down on their perspective. The hard part here, Jeff, is you can't know. So there are, you know, if interest rates were to go up, for example, it would make share prices less attractive, relatively speaking, than they otherwise might be because that you know that, that's the way the maths works. The higher the interest rate, the lower the share price, all else being equal. The old downward pressure, as polys like to say. And equally, as prices go, uh, rates go down, like house prices are going up, asset prices go up when rates go down because they become cheaper to buy and the, the returns people expect are lower, i.e. the asset prices goes up because the alternative, i.e. cash in the bank, is simply a lower return. Now, if I knew the official cash rate was going back to 5.5% in two years, I would do different things. But you can find people who will say, rates need to go up this year or next. Others like the RBA who say it's 2024, and others who say we won't see rates go up in our lifetime because there are structural problems. Now, you have to, to, to make a view, to, if you don't take an action on the basis of one of those, you've got to have a sense of the, which one's right, how right they are, how likely they are to be right, whether, whether it will come to pass. And frankly, if you bet on that stuff, the more extreme bets you make, the better the, the the you know the 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 riskier it is because if you're not right, you're going to get handed your backside right. If I'm going to if I'm going to go all into gold for some reason, and I'm wrong, and that gold price goes the wrong way, I, I'm I'm you know I'm losing decent amounts of money compared to what I might make otherwise. It's like people who are always betting on the next fall, right? There's always the the, the easiest example is there've been people. I mean, <laughs> I'll mention Steve Keen because I like well, you know I actually don't mind Steve Keen. I've, I've spoken to him on, on TV a few times. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. He sold his $400,000 Surrey Hills apartment because prices were going to crash. House prices were going to crash, right? X was it a decade and a half later now, Andrew? Um, yeah. I imagine it's probably three or four times the price now, that particular apartment. Now, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to add to Steve Keen's pain on that one, but the, the consequence of him being wrong, of, of making such an extreme call and being wrong are phenomenally huge. Compare that to maybe, maybe his $500,000 apartment, maybe property prices fell 20%. So his $400,000 apartment would still be worth $320,000. He still would own it. Um, you know, it, to my mind, it was an asymmetrical bet. 
Now, maybe he would have been right in a different universe. He's being lauded, lauded as you know the best economist ever, and we're quoting him every time we he opens his mouth because he was such a genius and so so clearly, obviously right that we all followed him. Um, you know, the, those are those are the things. The more extreme the bets you make to, on those sort of outcomes, the more frankly fragile your financial circumstances are. So, Jeff, I would say you're asking the question, which is how can I best prepare? Generally speaking. If you're chasing the absolute nth degree extreme, you know you talk about the uh, the bell curve, Andrew. As we started, um, you talk about the, you know the ends of the bell curve. There, if you want to chase the end of the bell curve to maximise your possible returns, you might get there. The amount of risk you add by trying that is really, really, really big. Um, if you're right, you're a genius. Buy lotto tickets, right? Zero chance of winning, but if you do, you win a million dollars. Is it a good bet? No. If you win the million dollars, you go, hey, see, it only cost me a dollar. I bought a lotto ticket and I won a million. Um, and so you know, again, depends on which story you're telling. But the odds, are, the odds aren't great. So I would just say be careful about trying to follow that stuff. I would say, for what it's worth, that it is always sensible, particularly as you start to amass some sort of nesting, to – and this is I, – I, I would – you've got a lot to lose as, as your portfolio gets bigger. And the more you have to lose, frankly, the less risk I would take because going back to square one is really expensive. I'm not saying don't take any risk. I'm not saying to go to cash. I'm saying just do prudent things like, for example, make sure you diversify I would absolutely look at the amount of debt my company's carried if rates start to increase because that, A, puts them at financial risk of literally going broke or at the very least is going to crimp their earnings because they're spending more and more of those profits paying back the interest bill, for example. So there are some really simple things you can do to just lower the risk in your portfolio of some of those financial outcomes. To Andrew's point, I love businesses that have pricing power, right? Because if, if prices go up, you want businesses that can pass that on. If the price of sugar and water goes up, Coke will absolutely pass on that price and the impact on their business will be negligible. Do you reckon you can put the price up on you know, home brand cola? Probably not quite honestly because people are only drinking out of sufferance already. Um, there's, you, know, you want to be in businesses that have pricing power so that if the price go up, they can pass them on. If they don't go up, then no, drink, no drama. There's no, there's no real downside to owning a business with pricing power. Uh, so value brands, value things that make those businesses unique or different or special. Um, that, that's probably, you know, I would, I would focus on quality in my portfolio rather than trying to estimate or guess what might happen financially. The more concerned you are, the more, more, more kind of, and when I say because I'm mean, literally worried, like if it's just keeping you up at night, diversification and quality will help to address that to some degree. Anything I said yeah. there, raising your thoughts for you, mate? I uh, just, just, I, I think that um, when, and, and, and this isn't the, the listener's point, but, but when you hear a lot of people out there, and there's some really dark scenarios that are out there, and I, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're non-zero chance. They, they, they yeah. could absolutely happen, but. But then practically, you kind of say, well, under that scenario, the only portfolio that makes sense is a tin of beans, a shotgun, and a tent. You know, it's kind of like that's that's the <laughs> only, cave. you know, be a troglodyte. Because you, you, yeah, you, you yeah. like when, when society collapses, you know, whether, you're, whether you've got Bitcoin or whether you've got gold or silver or CSL right, shit, right. like it's all gone. It's all gone. So, so under those... And, I, and again, let me just stress. I, I know the list is not not make, making this point, but 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 <laughs> the, the really really scary ones out there, the ones that get um, a, a lot of attention, it's kind of like, well, I just, so what? I don't know. Understand what I do about that? We're we are all mm. part of this broader society, for better or worse. You know, the, the broad direction that that goes in is going to impact us all to, to to greater or lesser degrees, and yeah. it's it's sort of there's there's things that they're absolutely important. And that you should worry about, but at the same time, practically, what do you do about it? Yeah, and right. uh, I met a guy not too long ago who's a who's a um, who's a prepper, and 
you know, he's, he's waiting for the end of the world. And, and if the end of the world happens, you know, he's going to be laughing. But if not, <laughs> you know, we're going to be looking back at this yeah. dude in, yeah. in 20 years going, man, you've been living in this shack out in the middle of the hills, you know, living off mm. witchetty mm. grubs and, and whatever. It's just, it's just mm. uh, I, I'd, I'd almost, I'd almost um, prefer to, to sort of have that, that zero option at the end of yeah. society. Yeah. <laughs> But still prosper on the way through. I, I don't know. It, it's it's too it's it's just too hard. At some point, there are things that 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 you can't worry about because there's no real easy practical answer to it anyway. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, the other thing I would say is, as you, I, I I'm finding myself so myself. I'm I'm getting older. As my as my lack of hair uh, and the amount of hair in my ears and nose will tell you. Um, as I get older, I and as I as my mastic starts to slowly, you know, compound and, and, and kind of gets get, gets quicker over time, the, the the rate doesn't necessarily increase, but the amount of cash starts to increase because the compounding does exactly that. Um, I do find myself just being more. You can you have the luxury of being more mindful of different outcomes, maybe a little bit. I said, be a little bit more conservative with your investing. Not and not again. I'm not going to cash at all. I, I have no cash. My portfolio is fully invested. But if I think about, you know, do I really want to chase that new big thing and try and triple my money? Maybe, but I'd be kind of happy with a with a market plus a few points, right? As as a as a regular compound return. So I'm just I, I would say for if you are worried, Jeff, just take some of those decisions that really do help you. Just be prepared if the worst is to happen. It's not likely, but you know you want to you want to be able to balance your investing uh, along those lines. Don't don't go to cash waiting for the crash because God knows how much money has been lost. Uh, the Steve Keen example is the best one I can think of, but there's probably plenty of others. Uh, equally. I wouldn't say that Keane was wrong if he'd said, hey, don't be triple leveraged. Even though even though the housing crash didn't come, if you'd listened to him and said, oh, you know what, I better be careful I just don't have too much leverage just in case. If and when we do have that housing crash, maybe it never comes. If it does come, it's probably not a massive risk to your portfolio if you don't take silly risk or if you don't have too much debt, if you have a rainy day account, those things that just make really boring but really important financial sense, they're things I'd be focusing on personally. Yeah, 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 100%. Very good. That's it, mate. Um, if you want to send us a question or a comment, we hope you will. One landed, here's a, here's a heads up for next week, Andrew. One landed while we were recording. How's this for real time? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. From a regular correspondent, Little Miss Hairy Legs on Twitter, who, and I'll just give you the question. I'm not going to ask you for the answer, but I'm just going to give you the heads up. Hi, Scott. Mm-hmm. And welcome, Andrew. Request for the full podcast. We've got Docs and Scott's five stocks for 2021, but we should have Andrew's too. I think we can allow him to be a late starter. Cheers from mm. Little Miss Hairy Legs. There you go. You're on notice for next week. Your top five right. stocks for 2021. In the Game meantime, on. like Little Miss Hairy Legs, if you want to get in touch with us, please do use the usual channels. You know what they are, but let me repeat them for you. They are Twitter. You can get me on at TMF Scott P. TMF for The Motley Fool, of course. TMF Scott P. You can get The Motley Fool at, at The Motley Fool AU. You can jump onto Andrew's Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon and at Strawman Invest. That's strawman.com, which is his business. We can get us on Instagram. Andrew's not quite one of the cool kids just yet. He's not yet on Instagram, but he will, I'm sure, in time. I couldn't get Doc on there before he left, but I'll desperately try and get Andrew on there. In the meantime, I'm on Instagram at TMF Scott P and The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, you can hit us up there. The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise is our Facebook page. Or my personal Facebook page is Scott Phillips Money. I didn't say this on Friday, but if you want to email us, you can do that as well. Info at fool.com.au. That's all the ways you can get in touch with us before next week's podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the Motley Fool Money podcast. You can do that through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, the Listener app. That's L-I-S-T-N-R. 
we're part of the Southern Cross Australia family with this podcast. The Listener app is their new app, which has a whole lot of cool stuff, podcasts, but also streaming music and a whole lot of other things. So have a look at that. Of course, no matter what app you're using, please give us some reviews and some ratings. Five stars would be lovely if you wouldn't mind. Leave some words so that other people can find the podcast as well. The podcast algorithms are strange and funny things, but generally speaking, the more reviews, the more ratings we get, the more people will be exposed to the podcast. If you're enjoying it long enough to listen right through this particular one, I'm going to assume you like the podcast and you think other people will as well. So please do pass that on. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money, but we'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Thanks for listening. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.